welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. We've got a summer roundup for you with lots to discuss. We have uh, an appeal in the Murray and Riley case, a decision from a Californian court relating to the employer rating site Glassdoor, uh, a TikTok featuring a Melbourne woman who says that she felt dehumanised after being recorded, Rob's crackdown on strategic lawsuits against public participation. The Sandy Hook massacre defamation case has reached its conclusion in the US. And we have appeals from Johnny Depp and Amber Heard in relation to the defamation trial that took place a couple of months ago in the States as well. But I want to start with the conclusion of the Wagatha Christie saga which was decided uh, the week before recording here at the end of July 2022, with Rebecca Vardy's claim being dismissed and Colleen Rooney's truth defence found to be successful. Listeners will be familiar with the highly entertaining facts. Miss Vardy brought the claim against Miss Rooney following the publication by Miss Rooney of a social media post where Miss Vardy had been accused of leaking private Instagram posts and stories to the Sun. Mrs Justice Sign found that Rooney's post was substantially true, although she failed in her public interest defence. It was held that Miss Vardy had used her agent Caroline Watts as an accomplice to leak the posts that she ha- and that she had condoned and actively engaged in the leaks. It was further found that Vardy had deliberately deleted WhatsApp conversations with Miss Watts and in a dramatic turn of events... Miss Watts had deliberately dropped her phone into the North Sea. The judge also labelled much of Miss Vardy's evidence as not credible and to be considered with caution. While the case doesn't really throw up any new or novel areas of law, it does serve as an example of defamation actions being brought as a result of interactions on social media, which are increasingly common and raise new challenges in relation to the potential to reach huge audiences without prior legal advice. The Wagatha saga has been a staple of the newscast series since our inception. Hardcore listeners will remember that Tom and I theorise on the potential for Vardy to bring a defamation action back at the end of 2019 when Rooney's sting operation was first published. Tom, now that we're at the end, do you think it was all worth it? No. I'm glad it's over. It's over. Easy. It over. Easy over. We don't have to do this anymore. Um, it's done. It's done. Uh, was it worth it? Absolutely not. Um, what a what a spectacular waste of time and money. Um, since uh, Rebecca Vardy clearly knew what she'd done and what her agent had done, as the court found very very firmly. I mean, this is a a very strong judgment. That the um, the High Court has put out there. It's firm in its conclusions. It's firm in uh, saying that whilst Colleen Rooney was uh, a, a credible witness, Rebecca Vardy was not. Uh, that in essence, Rebecca Vardy may well have come to believe her own story, story but she's deluding herself. Um, so it, it's 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 it wasn't a close close cut thing. That's what's quite clear at the end of all of this. Um, uh, it, it, it is fun now, you know, looking back and thinking, you know, we did spot this uh, as a potential claim. But of course, you know, it always came with the caveat that you don't pursue a libel claim if you've actually done the thing you're being accused of, um, unless you're glutton for punishment. 
Um, and that's what Vardy's done here. Um, two points, I think, come out of this. Um, the first on a point of law. Although it, in the end, had absolutely no bearing on the outcome of the case, the High Court does give us a little bit of what we lawyers call obiter dicta, a thing said by the way, a kind of insight into the way that a court might rule in future cases, about Section 4, the public interest defence. Um, because the High Court says that uh, the public interest defence would fail here because Colleen Rooney did not give Vardy the opportunity to respond prior to making uh, her uh, uh, social media post. Um, this seems to be a step beyond where we had gotten to with Section 4 as it applied to lay people, that is, non-journalists, uh, in the last few years. In Economo and Defratus, which was the leading case before this, uh, and remains the leading case, I mean, this doesn't change the fact that, that, that Economo is the leading case, um, the defendant there succeeded with a Section 4 defence, despite having not afforded the opportunity to the claimant uh, to put their side of the story, and in fact engaged in far fewer fact-finding exercises than Colleen Rooney had. Colleen Rooney had at least taken steps to verify the veracity of the allegations she was making, because that was the whole point of her Wagatha Christie investigation. She took considerable steps to whittle down the list of suspects and eventually happen upon one, which the defendant in Economo did not do. Um, so it's, it's a little bit odd in such a, sh a small amount of reasoning, and there's only a very uh, small amount of the judgment that's devoted to this, not surprising because the case didn't turn on it, um, it, it seems slightly odd to me that, that uh, the court would be prepared to reject the Section 4 defence, given that in Economo and Defratus, um, it's, uh, it, it seemed that the defendant had done less um, uh, in terms of the old responsible journalism criteria. Um, that said, the nature of the allegations were markedly different. Um, the allegations in Economo and Defratus were arguably more uh, attuned to the public interest. There was far less public interest, I think, in this. The court did find that there was public interest, but there seemed to be uh, only a small amount of it, really, when you think about it um, in terms of the, the, the facts of the case. The second point, I think, comes out of it, um, and this is only a quasi-legal point, is that this case has thrown up an awful lot of collateral damage. Um, this goes far beyond Rooney and Vardy. An awful lot of other people's names were dragged through the mud in the course of this litigation. A number of high-profile people, a number of less high-profile people, including celebrities, at least one other footballer, um, about which some matters apparently had become public before, but they got a lot more prominence because of this uh, trial. Um, and that is something that we're not hearing the government really being exercised about. In all of the talk about the need to reform defamation law, there doesn't seem to be any discussion uh, of the extent to which 
non-parties to the litigation are being dragged into what are in essence pretty trivial disputes um, and, and having their reputations dragged through the mud as well. Uh, is that something that the government should be focusing on or at least thinking about? Um, is, is that something that, that all of us concerned with defamation should be thinking about? Um, because I'm not sure that that is something that we certainly I didn't think about that in 2019. Um, when we first started speculating about the case, we had no idea that uh, the amount of collateral damage that might come out of it. So uh, that's just something I think ultimately to reflect on. But the good news, the really good news is it's over. It's the end of Wagatha Christie. We never have to mention it again unless there is an ill-advised appeal. Rebecca, if you're listening, please don't. Just stop. It's done. Life coaching with Tom Bennett. Okay, let's move on to another um, defamation case, and that's the appeal that we saw on the 21st of July 2022 in Murray and Riley. Uh, permission to appeal was based on Murray's real prospect of success, appealing on the grounds of public interest, as well as truth and honest opinion. Uh, for those who can't remember the details of this case, uh, this was de- a case decided last at the end of last year, Countdown host Riley sued Jeremy Corbyn's former aide, Laura Murray, over a tweet she posted in March 2019, shortly after a pro-Brexit campaigner had thrown an egg at Jeremy Corbyn during a visit to a North London mosque. Riley's tweet was understood by many, including Murray, as accusing Corbyn of being a Nazi and therefore deserving violence. Murray's tweet read... Rachel Riley tweets that Corbyn deserves to be violently attacked because he is a Nazi. This woman is as dangerous as she is stupid. Nobody should engage with her ever. At trial, Mr Justice Nicklin observed that Riley's tweet was ambiguous. She may or may not have been joking. He concluded that since Murray didn't acknowledge this ambiguity, in part since she did not quote Riley's tweet but rather indirectly referred to it, Murray presented her interpretation as the only one possible and therefore could not defend her own tweet as either true or as an honest opinion. Murray was ordered to pay Riley £10,000 in damages. Uh, Now, you've both had a full episode discussing this judgment, which, of course, listeners can go back to the Media Law Podcast archives and dig up. Um, But perhaps you could summarise for listeners the point that you raised about whether statements that interpret other statements are necessarily assertions of fact or expressions of opinion, as that seems to be the point that's most closely aligned to the grounds of appeal. Yeah, so um, I guess the first thing to say is I don't actually know whether it's going to be possible to appeal that aspect of the case properly, because the fact opinion distinction was determined by the high court in an earlier hearing on meaning as is common practice in defamation so the meaning was decided upon uh, a year or so before the trial um and that would have been the appropriate point after the meaning hearing to appeal the decision within that hearing so it's entirely possible that this appeal will proceed on the basis uh, the meaning as determined by the High Court cannot be touched 
uh, and just the application of defences, which causes a problem for uh, uh, Murray in attempting to argue that honest opinion should prevail here, because if the meanings, if the if if the High Court's earlier determination that this is a statement of fact cannot be touched, then obviously the defence of honest opinion cannot flow from it. But that is a problem. Uh, and, and that's that's the whole uh, reason behind my consternation with this particular decision. So the issue is this. In a, in, a, in a kind of traditional, everyday libel case, uh, it would have been a tweet in the position of Riley's, not Murray's, that ended up being the subject of the litigation. Riley says something that may or may not be taken as in imputing that Jeremy Corbyn is a Nazi, and then, you know, in another world, Jeremy Corbyn sues Riley for that. The court then determines what the meaning of the Riley tweet is, decides it bears a single meaning, which is either the defamatory meaning or a, a non-defamatory meaning, and then the case proceeds from there. But that's not how this proceeds. Instead, Riley's tweet goes out there and provokes controversy, as it was probably, I would have thought, in my opinion, intended to do. Um, the court has no problem with the notion then that Riley's tweet is ambiguous, but the response to it cannot be regarded as ambiguous because English law does not comprehend ambiguity when it comes to defamation. Things cannot be ambiguous. They have to have a single meaning. We have to work out what the single meaning is. Uh, and so it is decided that what Murray says uh, is not to be taken as Murray saying, this is my interpretation of what Riley has said, and by implication, my interpretation is necessarily one of many possible interpretations. Try getting that into 240 characters. Um, but rather that uh, uh, it is simply taken as a, as a statement of fact that Riley said Corbyn is uh, Corbyn deserved to be violently attacked because he is a Nazi. Um, I have problems with this on a number of levels. Uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't a statement in quote marks. It didn't purport to be verbatim. Uh, when a person says so-and-so tweets X and then doesn't put it in quotation marks, I think the reasonable reader will assume that it's being paraphrased, and because it's being paraphrased, it necessarily is an interpretation, and because it is an interpretation, it is necessarily subjective, and therefore it is necessarily an opinion. There's a few links in that chain, but it only takes you about half a second to work through it in your brain. Um, so, uh, yeah, I have, I, I, on that basis, I, I just don't think that the conclusion that was reached here was right. Um, I think what this ought to have been was uh, is, is regarded as a statement of opinion, and then the defence of honest opinion should have been run. Well, it was pleaded, uh, but it should have been looked at in much more detail, uh, and a decision should have turned on whether or not Murray could make out the elements of honest opinion, which is entirely possible she wouldn't have been able to do. The court clearly minded to take quite a hard line on uh, the, the fact that she didn't link to Riley's original tweet. Um, of course, as regular tweeterers will know, adding a, a, a hyperlink into a tweet will take up a lot of characters, although a retweet does not, so she could have retweeted and done it that way. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, just at a level of principle, the fact that 
it seems that if this had been regarded as an opinion, Murray might have avoided liability either by simply retweeting Riley's original tweet and thus spreading the what you perceive to be an allegation against Corbyn further, or by adding a few little words to the effect of, this is my opinion, if that's all it would have taken, then the notion that the law looks to substance rather than to form is rendered somewhat redundant. That's the matter I hope the Court of Appeal finds a way to consider, but it might well find itself or believe itself to be or declare itself to be procedurally um, bound um, by an inability to revisit the earlier meaning decision. Um, I believe that the uh, former judge in charge of the media and comms list, uh, now Court of Appeal Judge Lord Justice Warby, is on the panel. Uh, that's the information I had. I haven't verified it, though. Um, this I was told. Um, so uh, there is at least an expert in the Court of Appeal who is going to be considering this, and it'll be interesting uh, when we get the judgment, see which way it goes. Uh, I suspect there's a pretty strong possibility that we're heading to the Supreme Court on this, whichever way it goes. If Murray is feeling that she, she, she wants to appeal these things and has the means to appeal them, um, I, I didn't expect an appeal to the Court of Appeal, I have to say, uh, given the level of the litigation. Um so if she's pursued it that far, she may well pursue it to the Supreme Court. And if Riley loses, I'd have thought Riley would appeal um, to the Supreme Court to try to reinstate the original decision. So I think there's a decent chance we end up in the Supreme Court. But um, we'll expect Court of Appeal judgment sometime this autumn. And we'll, of course, keep listeners updated as and when we get that judgment. Um, one thing that's kind of come around the, the press comments of um, Murray and Riley is the chilling effects or, or this always gets raised when yeah um these kinds of cases come out um and and i think that's a nice way to segue into uh, rob's recent crackdowns on slaps or strategic lawsuits against public participation you know no one's really said that murray and riley's a sap but there's been kind of everyone's danced around the idea um and this is obviously something that the press is very focused on at the moment as well as um the Deputy Prime Minister, the government published its response to the call for evidence on strategic lawsuits against public participation. And this includes a series of measures to prevent so-called slaps. Uh, according to the Ministry of Justice, this includes a new tool for the courts to throw out meritless claims quicker and a cap on costs to prevent the rich from bullying journalists with the threat of expensive litigation. Paul, you wrote a response to the government's response on Inform, uh, in which you made four criticisms. I'd like to go through them with you now, just briefly, um, for the listeners who maybe haven't read your post. Perhaps we would just start with the, the first one you made, which is the speed with which this process was undertaken and, and maybe how that reflects the political climate in which this response was was initiated. Yeah. Okay. So the the call for evidence was uh, was issued in in March. For a number of years, um, commentators have have spoken about slaps as as a phenomena that needs investigation. Um, 
and as with other phenomena um there's there's an it, it, it's difficult to sort of penetrate in some ways in order to keep a lid on what counts as a slap and what what doesn't in the same way that we see the problem with wokeness uh, and cancel culture these phrases take on a life of their own uh, they are presented as if they have a sort of inherent uh, indubitable meaning um but when what stops to sort of think about well what that meaning might be uh, it can often be difficult to sort of get a get a firm handle on them so um the the call for evidence ostensibly appeared as if the government wanted to understand the extent of this phenomena and whether it was uh, a, a problem or not a problem requiring state intervention now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly sensible, I suppose. Except the way that the questions were set up in the call for evidence was an exercise in confirmation bias. In other words, the government, in its questioning, was already presupposing that slaps are a thing, are a real problem, deserving of government time and energy, and that really the call for evidence was about what should be done to tackle the problem. In fact, Dominic Raab's foreword in both the call for evidence and the response to that call for evidence is almost exactly the same language. It, it speaks of a growing, increasing problem that demands uh, government attention. Uh, now, th this uh, is odd. And the cynical observer will question the speed with which this was introduced and wonder whether the underlying impetus for this is a government that's in desperate need of media support and backing against all the contrary evidence that suggests it's a terrible government doing a terrible job. It needs its propaganda machine at full tilt so it can make progress. Now, I, I, of course, we're not cynical, so we won't indulge in that kind of speculation, but we should at least recognise the possibility. The problem with slaps, if, if we take it literally, this idea that there are incredibly rich people out there who are, who are in, in, the, in the call for evidence uh, words, abusing the legal system in order to silence legitimate debate on their actions, that is of, of itself something that calls for consideration. It's a, it's a clear sort of violation of free speech. But this isn't a government that cares about the exploited. It doesn't care about protecting the exploited from the super rich. We know that just by looking at our energy bills. We're all paying phenomenal amounts of money to keep our homes warm, whilst the super rich are making super rich profits on the back of um, the uh, exploited. So this whole endeavor, it, it just strikes me as strange in terms of the, the speed. Um, the, sec the second point is, if there is a real problem here, where is the evidence? The call for evidence, of course, didn't contain any evidence. That was the whole point. But the response doesn't contain any evidence either. There's no data, there's no numbers, there's no metrics. There's no analysis. There's nothing. There's just a series of bold statements that say, well, we have carefully considered this and we're convinced there's a problem here. 
Uh, the third is is the sort of solution that the government is proposing. The solution it's proposing um, isn't a change to the substantive law because there's the general recognition that the law is working, that defamation law is working to protect public interest expression. There's also recognition that the civil procedure rules contain a series of measures that allow judges, give judges the power to dismiss litigation that has no uh, prospect of success. There's various different things that judges can do. One of the features of the call for evidence and in the response as well was the idea that solicitors are writing or legal representatives or PR companies are writing, uh, inverted commas, highly aggressive, inverted commas, letters to the other side that is being received as, as intimidatory. Well, the civil procedure rules provide judges with the power and the question of costs to penalise that kind of behaviour. So, and, and the, the response recognises all of this. The response also recognises, and, and I think this is, uh, so the third point is, well, what can the law do about this? The, the, the fourth point is that the, the, the response recognises that actually the elements within the acronym SLAPS are problematic to define, particularly around this idea of public participation. What, what is public participation? What does that mean? The government works on the basis that there's an important right here and it links it to, to free speech. But public participation is even slipperier as a concept than public interest. The uh, call for evidence and the response focuses on, it's not exclusively, but it focuses on defamation law. It also admits that slaps could apply in a privacy context or data protection context. Defamation law, historically, when it has pronounced on public interest, has tended to pronounce at a very low level. So we see cases in which, for example, the closure of a popular play and the reasons for the closure of that play uh, was said to be a public interest matter deserving of uh, discussion. We've just seen in Wagatha Christie the idea that Colleen Rooney, commenting on who's been leaking stories about her to the press, the court was prepared to accept that could be a public interest matter. So if we're setting that bar, if we're setting the bar that low for what counts as public interest, and therefore public participation, we're opening the door to um, a very broad range of litigation types to fall under this umbrella term. And if we just sort of think that through, are we saying then that the Wagatha Christie case, which did involve someone with apparently a lot of money, who could easily involve, it could easily label as super rich, engaging in a slap, trying to silence Colleen Rooney from bravely sharing with the world her experiences. Is that a slap? Is that the threshold? Well, what about Sandy Hook? And you mentioned this in the introduction, uh, Colette. Sandy, the Sandy Hook defamation, if, if uh, listeners don't know, um, concerns a defamation claim that's been brought by two parents whose uh, child was slaughtered in an elementary school massacre in America. 
Now that of itself is is a horrific words can't even describe how a horrific event in anyone's life that no one should have to go through. But now imagine that a conspiracy theorist with sheepish followers asserts that that event didn't happen. Not only did it not happen, but the individuals involved are actors and that they've set up the entire thing in order to lobby for greater gun control. Now, are we saying that that is a slap? When the parents of that uh, child brought defamation proceedings against Alex Jones, which looked like they'd been successful, in writing to him to suppress his speech, he's claiming this is a violation of his free speech rights, he's just raising a matter of public interest, does that become a slap if they're if those parents were A, rich, and B, wrote aggressive letters, or letters that were perceived by the recipients of aggressive as aggressive. The, the whole problem with this exercise is that in the proposals that have been put forward by the government, what is there to ensure that news organisations, the legacy press, can't use these proposed measures to their advantage in order to further their own commercial interests in surviving, in acting as a government propaganda machine, if they choose to do so. There's nothing in those proposals. So these proposals that, well, well courts need to have power to enter into these proceedings quicker, all it does is arm an industry that is already very powerful, it arms them with a further means of trying to intimidate claimants with genuine claims to say you're engaging in slaps. And we're going to rely on this measure that the government's going to introduce hastily that would allow us to penalise you, take away your home, take away your livelihood. One thing you said is that the response focuses a lot on the um, anecdotal evidence of people who feel they've been subjected to slaps. And, and I think the, the Sandy Hook um, connection raises uh, an interesting question as to whether the response takes into account any of the perceptions of victims of press malpractice. Yeah, well, well I think the short answer to that is it doesn't. Um, this is a government that refuses to recognise that press regulation isn't working that the legacy press continues to destroy the lives of individuals on a daily basis, needlessly. Um, it's self-satisfied. It's this the government is gullible. Um, this parliament is gullible, and it believes that it needs to have the support of the popular press in order to either gain election for the Labour Party or regain uh, election for the Conservatives, and therefore it's not willing to take on. Uh, the the press, but it is prepared for some reason that I can't fathom to take on so-called super rich. You obviously mentioned the Sandy Hook um, case there, but just to, to conclude on that particular trial, um, Alex Jones was ordered to pay 4.1 million in damages to the parents of a child who was killed in the 
Sandy Hook massacre. And in his own testimony, he apologized and conceded that the 2012 massacre was, um, and I quote, 100% real. Um, Perhaps sticking with the US uh, for the moment, just to briefly mention that on the 22nd of July, 2022, Johnny Depp files notice of appeal one day after his former partner, Amber Heard, filed her own appeal against the outcome of the multi-million dollar defamation claim that Depp won uh, last month now. Um, Heard's legal team submitted evidence that claimed errors were made during the trial that had prevented a just and fair verdict from being returned. Depp is appealing the two million that Heard was awarded um, in relation to one of the comments made by his lawyer that the whole thing was in fact a hoax. Um, we're awaiting a decision on on both of those and we will of course update listeners when we get one. Um, Moving then from the US over to uh, New Zealand, um, well, actually, it involves both jurisdictions, to be fair. A Californian court has ordered the employer rating site Glassdoor to hand over the identities of users who claimed that they had negative experiences working for a New Zealand toy giant, Zuru. The decision prompts unease for online platforms that rely on anonymity to attract candid reviews. Glassdoor was ordered to provide the information to Zuru so that they could undertake defamation proceedings against the reviewers in New Zealand. Um, is there any protection for companies in, in instances like this where they do rely on anonymity? Uh, it, it feels like this is something that surely companies where this is their whole business model would have thought of before so i'm quite surprised that this has actually happened uh well i think they should write to dominic rab and say this is a slap um i mean (laughs) for reasons just discussed right (laughs) if anything is a slap uh here it is um uh, is there protection for companies i mean under u.s law i don't know um i'm I'm not enough of a specialist in uh the relevant state doctrine um these sorts of orders do crop up from time to time in uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, here we know them as uh, Norwich Pharmacal orders. Um, it's a mechanism by which the holders of information can be required to disclose that information for the purpose of uh, commencing litigation based upon it. Um, and I think it's I think it's quite right that there is a degree of unease about this, um, but you know I wouldn't subscribe to the view that you know this is a practice that is inherently bad. Um, I think the ability to force whether it's a company or an internet service provider or whomever it might be um, to reveal the identity of uh, or at least to reveal information that might end up disclosing the identity of a person who has uh, caused tortious harm to another, uh, to have that information revealed so that litigation can commence is, uh, in, in a number of circumstances, a good thing. So where you have uh, trolls and bullies and people online who cause harm, people who are defaming others online, where you have the uh, you know individuals posting revenge pornography online, um, it, it's good that it's, there is a mechanism for identifying these people. Um, 
but it, the mechanism is clearly being used here by a company in order to try to stifle criticism. Um, we don't know whether that criticism is fair. The company is presumably saying it isn't. Um, if these are genuine workers, they will presumably say that it is. Um, but if it is fair criticism, perhaps the the, the way for to deal with it um, is for them to defend the claim. Okay, so I had a thought. I think we should take a moment to just recognise that. I'm, I'm, I've been waiting um, for years. Section 10 of the Contempt of Court Act. Could we repurpose Section 10 of the Contempt of Court Act for these kind of purposes? That sounds interesting. Do explain. Okay, because the, the language of Section 10 specifically, or no, or, uh, is of course, although we tend to think of Section 10 of the Contempt of Court Act, which, which is used to protect journalistic sources, we tend to think of that as if it's just, if, as if it only applies to journalists. But the wording of Section 10 uh, doesn't limit protection to journalists. It says no court may require a person to disclose nor is any person guilty of contempt of court for refusing to disclose the source of information contained in a publication for which he is responsible, unless it be established to the satisfaction of the court that disclosure is necessary in the interest of justice or national security or for the prevention of disorder or crime. Um, Now, um, there there is a sort of circuitous route, I think, through that, where you, where a company who um, is suffering reputational damage, may argue that Section Ten can't apply in these circumstances, um, because it's in the interests of of uh, justice. But it'd be interesting to see if a court could sort of fashion a, a, a not a court, an advocate could fashion a sort of Section Ten type argument in respect to these kind of disclosures, uh, given our uh, penchant for protecting public participation, um, or whether Section 10, despite its clear wording to the contrary, can only be used by journalists. I think that's a really interesting idea. Um, So if if one of these cases comes up in the UK, um, yeah, barristers of london uh let us know if you think this is workable or, or or don't just go try it out see what happens um but we'll be we'll be watching i'll be interested to see yeah and give us some credit for it yeah it, it definitely tell tell the judge if you plead this that um paul rag had a thought good authority um all right final thing i want to mention today is uh a a random acts of kindest TikTok in Australia that's attracted some controversy. Um, A a woman from Melbourne says that she feels dehumanised after being filmed without consent for a random act of kindness TikTok by the creator Harrison Pulwark, who approached Marie, uh, who never gave her last name to the press, in a public shopping centre and asked her to hold a bouquet of flowers while he put on his jackets. All the while, his friend was secretly filming from the sidelines. Paulwick then wished her a good day and walked away, leaving her with the flowers. The video now has over 59 million views and 11 million likes. 
Marie learned about the video through a friend and initially didn't think anything of it. But after seeing the TikTok video featuring her in media reports, describing her as an elderly woman with a heartbreaking tale, she said she felt dehumanized. She said that it's patronizing to assume that an older woman will be thrilled by some random stranger giving them flowers. She also said that she asked Paulwick whether she was being filmed and was assured that she wasn't. Um, Now, I feel like a lot of people's immediate reaction will be, she's overreacting. This isn't a big deal. But this is undoubtedly a a breach of someone's privacy and seclusion. She didn't ask for this kind of attention and, um, and now has kind of been thrust into it. And I guess that is something that TikTok and um, social media influencers maybe have to consider a little bit more when they're making their content. Well, I think given that we've already talked about um, a case in which uh, we've had lengthy defamation litigation over A, the throwing of an egg and the accusation of being a Nazi, uh, and B, um, Wagatha Christie. I, I don't think we can accuse uh, this lady of overreacting at all, um, given that actually by comparison she's underreacting. Um, it does raise issues, of course, about privacy um, and the idea of privacy in a connected world. Um, she may well have asked several times, am I being filmed? Um, whether the answer was yes or no, we shouldn't indulge the idea that people have a right uh, to demand consent uh, to public uh, filming, public participation, I nearly said then. Um, because privacy law doesn't extend uh, that, that far. Um, so it does raise interesting questions, I think, about expectations of privacy in a public space. Yes, and I think this is an absolutely classic invasion of privacy um is it yes this woman goes out and expects to be seen i guess in passing by the other people who are in and around her in that particular public space but does not expect to be seen by 59 million people over and over again uh and with 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 a particular focus on her attention drawn to I, I, I don't know what uh, the physical condition is that has led to her being in uh, a wheelchair, but um, whatever that is. Uh, and there being a particular focus upon her and her reaction when put in a position that she didn't expect to be in, uh, where she's being lied to by a person uh, and asked to hold an object that is possibly quite heavy uh, and quite difficult to hold if you're in a wheelchair. Um, I, I think this is a classic invasion of privacy for a number of reasons. First of all, she's being exposed to far more people than she would ever have expected to be. And the video has been put on a medium where it is likely to be permanent unless TikTok decides for whatever reason to uh, remove it or uh, the, the original poster removes it. Um, it's an invasion of privacy because it has caused her a degree of distress that she could reasonably have expected not to be exposed to, and because it is exploitative. Um, This individual uh, who has uploaded it has profited by doing so. I don't know 
whether he has profited financially. I suspect if he's got 59 million views on his TikTok, he's probably found a way to monetize it, but I don't know that. But it is certainly profitable in terms of his exposure, because, uh, you know, if you're getting 59 million views, your video is, 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 is very clearly viral. Uh, and that's going to enhance his profile. So this person's woman is being exploited. Uh, she gets nothing other than a bunch of flowers she did not want, uh, and which just made her day more difficult, uh, and a lot of attention she does not want. Uh, whereas uh, in this individual who filmed it gets precisely what he wants. So I think there are a number of reasons why we can say that this interferes with her, her privacy. Of course, uh, she runs up against a major problem in Australia, which is that Australia doesn't have a common law tort of invasion of privacy. Um, it has a doctrine of breach of confidence, um, but it is extremely limited in its privacy protections at common law. Uh, there were some, uh, there was a law commission, um, a set of law commission proposals around privacy in Australia a few years ago. I don't think those were ever actioned because of the ever shifting political climate. Um, down under. So uh, as a matter of law, I'm afraid given the jurisdictional limitations, I think there's very little she's going to be able to do about it, but I have great sympathy. And if it happened in the United Kingdom, I would be saying here's a test case for a uh, tort of intrusion. There's also, I think, enough in there for a misuse of private information, frankly. See, I, I disagree. Yay! I think, I think you've jumped... I think you've jumped a step. I think you've gone straight to consequences. I don't think you're following the the Bennett rule book here on privacy claims. Go on then. Um, well, because the, there has to be something to to trigger the reasonable expectation of privacy in the first place, and then we move on to the seriousness of the of the interference. I don't see how you get past that first step of showing there was something private going on here. There you are. That's how you do it. You plead von Hanover. No, I don't. I, but I, I think privacy is perfectly possible in a public place, even going about everyday mundane activities. Von Hanover number one. There we are. But I think our law in this in this country doesn't quite line up with von Hanover in that sense because of the sort of popping out for a pint of milk principle. It gets trotted out from time to time. Popping out for a pint of milk principle is surely subordinate to the later von Hanover principle. Not if Dominic Raab has his way. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, if Dominic Raab has his look. way, then we're all just subordinate to... We don't look to European Court of Human Rights law to tell us what to do in this country. How about now, Paul, you're breaking the, the, you're breaking the RAG rule, which is take the doctrine seriously. Yeah. I'm, I'm with... Um... Tom on this one because Weller is a UK case and that was about yep. um, kids no. being out in public. Yes, that's kids. A... That's kids though. Well, wasn't the? I thought the one of them was seventeen. 16. Yeah, and Weller was sixteen. So the, but the, the reasoning, the reasoning they found a reasonable expectation of privacy was because they know that they're going to be seen by X people on the street, but not X million who read the tabloid press. No. No, still kids. It's still Murray. It's still you. You're applying a different standard because they're children. You're applying a lesser standard. So things that adults would have to tolerate, children wouldn't. UK courts might be doing that, but the no distinction was drawn between the ages of the individuals in von Hanover, precisely because there is no age distinction in Article Eight. 
Everyone okay. has the right to private and family life. Yeah. So, so what we'd be emphasizing here, if we were to say this was an invasion of privacy, is the sort of dignity element in European case law. But I, I think a court would struggle with that to establish what it was here that represented the, the threat to dignity. I'm not sure it's dignity. I would, I would say this is a threat to psychological integrity um, because of the level of distress that is caused. But that's only by the... That's only by, okay, so then we'd have to think about what the tortious event is. Is it the act of filming itself or is it the number of hits that it's generated? At what point is the tort committed? Well, I would what, say... What if, he'd, what if he'd filmed it and no one watched it? Well, I would say that the tortious act ought to be the filming, because I believe there ought to be a tort of intrusion. Um, But given that currently we don't have a tort of intrusion, the tortious act that is currently, uh, that English law is currently capable of taking cognizance of is the publication. Um, And that becomes actionable when there are enough views of it for there to be a, a serious and substantial tort. Um, which would not actually be a terribly high number of views. But I would like to think that this would be the opportunity for somebody to plead, A, a misuse of private information, B, an intrusion, and invite uh, the High Court, as it would have to be at first instance, to declare both that their publication is tortious and that the filming is tortious and that there are two parallel privacy torts, intrusion, and misuse of private information. Um, though I suspect what might happen is that it gets pleaded uh, and the uh, High Court goes, well, uh, there's, uh, we'll, we'll just say that the filming amounts to acquisition and acquisition of information can be part of a misuse of it and we'll roll it all into misuse of private information. Then we'll have an even more unworkable and unwieldy tort of misuse of private information. So please, High Court judges out there, don't do it that way. And if you get the opportunity, just have a separate tort. Let's separate these things out, keep them conceptually distinct and have a larger range of things that are less vulnerable because there are more of them to disappearing should the government get its wish of repealing uh, the Human Rights Act and possibly, as some members of the Tory uh, party are threatening, withdrawal from uh, the European Convention. The more torts we have, the more common law we have, the less vulnerable it is. Well, with that plug, I think it's a good time to round up Uh, Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for your brilliant insights. Oh, thanks, Colette. Thanks, Paul. Good to speak to you both. Yeah, thanks, Colette. Thanks, Tom. As ever, follow us on social media, and we will be back at the end of the summer with more media law news, media law podcast newscasts. Have a great summer, everyone. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.